But here's the thing that, that I want our viewers and our, our, our hearers to, to hear is that it's easy for us to think of the gospel as I'm going to tell you this story about Jesus. And if you believe it, you're a Christian, you know, or if you accept right. it, you're a Christian. And, and, and what I want to say is, no, no, no. If you listen to the heart of God all the way through scripture, he is saying, he is saying, come to me, <laughs> you know, these things, yes. you know, I am the spring of living water. I am what you really want and what you need. Quit with the false gods and the strange gods and falling down to idols. Quit, put them away, throw them away and come to me. Hello and welcome to another barn burning episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleagues Ken Hensley and Kenny Burchard. Uh, Ken was a Baptist pastor. Kenny was a Pentecostal pastor, Foursquare tradition. Uh, I worked at Family Christian Store and played in some bands, but that's not as important as the fact that these other guys were they 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 like had like real life jobs. <laughs> Um, and Christian denominations. Please come check us out at chnetwork.org. Uh, if you want to find more resources, previous episodes of On the Journey, uh, you can go to our online community as well and plug into a group of people who are all asking the same questions together. That's community.chnetwork.org. And this is all made possible because of, uh, well, generous support of various donors. And most of them um, are kind enough to give through our Compass program. And during this series, if you go to chnetwork.org slash donate, uh, click on the Compass program uh, and make a donation, a monthly regular donation uh, at any level, we'll send you a book. It's this book. It's called What Must I Do to Be Saved by Marcus Grodi. I'll make him sit down and sign it uh, next time I see him, which should be here <laughs> pretty soon. Uh, but it's going to be I mean, this is directly related to the series that we're doing right now on salvation and justification and sanctification and all that stuff. So again, chnetwork.org slash donate. Join the Compass program at any level. $10 a month is kind of like the basic level, uh, but we would love to have you be a participant and a supporter of uh, On the Journey. Um, that's all don't, the pitching don't forget, that I plan Don't to forget do. that coupon code. Don't forget that promo code. That's right, the coupon code. Uh, when you go there, <laughs> if you want the book, the sign book, which is right side up now, OTJ3141. <laughs> Again, OTJ3141, enter the code. <laughs> See how bad I am at selling things? You're just, awesome, just Matt. You're awesome. Save me the shame and just go just go <laughs> do it. All right. Ken Hensley, are you ready to talk about uh, how to be holy? Talk about it. Yeah, I'm good at that. <laughs> I think I'm okay. <laughs> are you ready to that. model how to be yeah. holy? That's a different question. Okay, look. Let's launch because so. we have a lot to cover. Over the last 10 weeks... 10 weeks. We've been dealing with the subject of the mass. We had a great a great series on the mass. We're changing uh, directions now. And for the next 10 weeks or so, maybe less, maybe more, we're going to be uh, talking about the Christian doctrine of sanctification. You said uh, justification. You said some other words. We will touch on those. But, but the focus is on sanctification. That is the doctrine that deals with the process by which we actually internally from the inside out become holy how we are transformed into the image of christ 
Now, we know from Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, that nothing unclean, that's what the Bible says, nothing unclean can enter heaven and enter God's presence. Because of this, we know that when the time comes for us, Matt, Kenny, myself, to enter heaven, we will not be like we are now. <laughs> and I won't go into detail if that's all right with you at this <laughs> point, but, but we're not going to be as we are now. We will have been completely, entirely purified and made ready by that moment. Now, and we're not there yet, yet. not even close. And I, I was thinking one of you might say, speak for yourself, Ken, at, that, at this <laughs> point, but we're not there. We're not ready. We're not even close to being ready. At least I'm not even close to being ready. And I, I'll make it personal. I'll, I'll state it in a personal way. As, as much as I may want in my better moments to be entirely conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, I live with the painful awareness <laughs> that I need to be changed a lot. And I'm sure that the two of you feel the same way. Well, absolutely. I feel that same way. Um, And, you know, for me, my angle on this question comes from the fact that I was raised in the holiness movement, right? Uh, In the Church of the Nazarene and the Free Methodist Church. Um, I know that depending on when people are watching this, it might be in regular proximity to the news cycle that is included uh, Asbury College slash university and its revival that's gone on um, in Hughes Auditorium there, the main chapel on campus. And if you go to Hughes Auditorium on the campus of Asbury uh, and you look above the pipe organ, there in big bold letters it says, Holiness unto the Lord, right? <laughs> I mean, this is mm-hmm. this is this is my yeah. whole aspiration was I wanted to be holy, right? Um, it wasn't just about faith alone in my particular faith tradition. It was not just about once saved, always saved. I had to, I mean, according to my theological tradition, conform myself to Christ on a daily basis. So this is, you this had is right to, in the heart of where I was. You had to, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Um, okay, yes. and good. And the question we're asking in, in this series is, what is the process by which this happens? What is the process by which we are made fit for fellowship with the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and entrance into heaven? What is the path? Okay, these are the questions that the doctrine of sanctification answers. These are the questions we're going to be exploring over the coming weeks. You two okay with that? Sounds You're great. All right. You're right. Tell okay. me how to be holy, Ken. <laughs> Actually, show me how to be holy, Ken. Show me. Yeah. Show me. Show me how to be, be holy. Yeah, amen. So okay. good. Well, that's the question we're going to be asking, and I want to take a step back to begin and ask another question, and that is, what is the call of the gospel? This is what I want to talk about for a few minutes here. When Jesus came preaching, this is what I'm, what I'm referring to, what exactly did he call people to do? I mean, what were the requirements of those who would be his disciples? Now, I'm going to read a number of passages from Scripture here, and I, I want them just to wash over you. Just listen, just hear them again. Because I remember wondering in my earlier years as a Christian, I remember wondering as I read the Gospels and I noticed all the different ways in which the call of Christ is described, wondering how do, how do they all fit together? What's going on here? Okay, for instance, Jesus commanded those who would be his disciples to come to him and to believe in him. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom God has sent. Uh, but he also commanded those who would be his followers to repent of their sins 
and be baptized. Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then John 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And for those who don't think that Jesus was referring to baptism here, I can't go off on a tangent and prove that at this point. But Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the first sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost. I quote, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have to come to Jesus. We have to believe in him. We have to repent of our sins. We have to be baptized. But that's not the end of it. Jesus also commanded his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. Luke 9, 23. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. He also called those who would be his disciples to obey him. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But even that is not the end of it. Jesus also commanded his followers, to confess their faith before men, to be willing to confess their faith in him. Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He also demanded that we love him. Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And in James chapter 1, verse 12, this is confirmed. This text has always kind of blown me away in its, in its subtlety and how it crosses certain ways I used to think. This is what James says, Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life comes to those who love God those who love Christ. But there's a little bit more. Jesus also called his followers to serve him. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, then he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then finally, Jesus called his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. I'm referring to John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54, where Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let, let me put this all together, okay? It, it seemed to me, and th I'm, I'm talking about years and years ago as a young Christian and growing in my faith and learning and reading the Bible, it, it seemed to me that if you simply read the Gospels, if you simply listen to what Jesus is saying in them, without coming with any preconceived theological you know, grid that you're laying over the book, that you would, re you would realize that Jesus is calling us to come to him. We must believe in him. We must repent of our sins and be baptized. We, make, we must take up our cross and follow him. We must obey him. We must confess him before men. We must love him. We must serve him. We must eat his flesh and drink his blood. The call is comprehensive. 
Now, as I'm going to explain in just a moment to you, I really struggled with this because in my Reformed tradition, I had been taught that we are made right in the sight of God by faith alone in the, impute, in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, and yet I'm reading the Gospels and Jesus seems to be saying, I want everything. I want all of it. So let me throw it to you though, because Kenny and Matt, you, you both came from different backgrounds than I did. And so my question is, how did you deal with all of this? I mean, was this just sort of like, the common thing and the way of understanding and you were fine with it all? Or did you struggle in any way with all these different things Jesus is calling us to do? I, I've, I'll start, uh, Ken. Sure. I will, I will say early in my Christian life, as I was casting about trying to find the voices, you know, the, the people that I trusted, one of the, before I kind of landed where I was um, when I was a pastor, before I landed, I spent years uh, listening to hours and hours and hours of a very famous Calvinist um, a teacher, a Bible teacher of Calvinism, very, very famous, well-known, um, and learned this uh, sort of the Calvinist way that you're talking about, or the Reformed way of thinking about all of this. And I took a class from a Bible college on soteriology, and all of these things were covered. And it was because of that system that I struggled. Because for me, um, trying to take what I was reading in the Bible and set it down inside of the system, it kind of reminds me of my biology class when I was a junior in high school and we dissected a frog. I mean, we started <laughs> with this, <laughs> this one whole frog in front of us. And then we proceeded to deconstruct it, dislocate lungs from heart, legs from, you know, the body, eyes from skull, you know, all this stuff and put these and then pin them far apart from each, each other and try to look at them by themselves. And to me, it really felt like when I was embracing that system of thought that this is what, what had happened is that there was such a dislocation of all these ideas from one another and then putting them in a particular order, uh, ranking them in terms of which was the most important and then, um, which came first. <laughs> you know, there's different ways of ranking that, I, that it really felt like what we had was a dissected, you know, theology in front of us. And then kind of like you, like what you said a minute ago, that just your reading of scripture seemed to make that whole approach very difficult. I would say it this way. It wasn't intuitive. You, you couldn't lock me in a room with my Bible and end up with such a dissected, dislocated um, uh, system. It's called, you know, for those who are listening, an, uh, a system of ordo salutis, you know, putting things in a specific, or specific order of when they happen. But that just didn't seem intuitive at all. And then later as I went along, and, and those who've listened will know, I became a four-square pastor, which is in the Pentecostal tradition, which really embraces Wesleyan and Arminian convictions about all this. To me, that's just where I landed because it just seemed to resonate with everything you just said, which is, this is all together. These aren't mm -hmm. things that are meant to be dislocated from each other and separated out uh, as though they could exist differently. So I landed in a different camp than the one I started with. And I'm sure where you landed is a bit closer to what Matt is thinking, right, Matt? 
Well, so I'm going to be the weirdo in the room. Like when I found out the Catholic way of thinking about this stuff, which we'll get to over time, I was like, yeah, that sounds actually fairly similar to, you know, what I was raised on uh, in <laughs> the right. sense that like, you know, we never in my holiness tradition thought, well, you can believe and then you have eternal security. Like Blessed Assurance is not a song that we like saying a lot in my congregations, right? Um, we knew you had to confess <laughs> uh, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Like we knew that, the, that you had to say stuff, you had to believe stuff, you had to do stuff, um, you had to persevere uh, that even the smallest sin in my tradition could cut you off from God um, irreparably unless you repented. Like it was an ongoing process. So in right. response to the question, what must I do to be saved, right? It was not merely a <laughs> just believe, right? you know, and then you're good. Like, right. That was never that was never the case in my tradition. So, you know, when I got to the, the place to figure out, you know, what the historic teaching of Christianity had been over— 20 centuries, turns out it sounded a whole lot like the kind of thing that I'd been trained on as a Wesleyan Arminian in the holiness movement. Exactly. Right. And okay, for me, I'll come back to the frog, all right, and the dissection of the frog a little (laughs) bit. Because, you know, reading the Gospels and hearing all of these various ways in which Jesus is coming at me and calling me and requiring of me, you know, on the one hand, I could see that Jesus wasn't requiring perfect faith or perfect repentance or perfect obedience, perfect love, perfect service, perfect confessing him before men. There were all kinds of stories in the Gospels that let me know that. The man, I'm thinking of the man in the temple, the sinner who just beats on his chest. He's not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven. It just says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says he went home justified. Or, or, or the story of the prodigal son, you know, the father didn't say to him when he came home, no, I, you know, I want perfect repentance. You know, the guy said, you know, he, he accepted him or the story of the woman caught in adultery. So I could see that Jesus wasn't calling for a perfect response, but it certainly was a total response. And the problem that I had, okay, the dissection of the frog, the way I di- dissected it was, I believe that we are made right in the sight of God. We are justified by faith alone. At the moment of faith, Christ's righteousness legally credited to my account, the doctrine of imputation, and I am saved. So I would put the call to faith under justification, under the justification tent, and then all these other calls, you know, including repentance and baptism and following and obeying and serving and loving and all the rest, I'd put that under sanctification. And, and I would say, oh, okay, by faith alone, I am saved, I'm justified, but then I began a process of sanctification, and that's where all the rest of these things apply. It was, it was all divided up, okay? And here's the problem. While I could draw this neat and clean, clear distinction um, as a Calvinist between justification and sanctification, I was troubled even then, long ago. I was troubled by the fact that Jesus never made this clear and, and distinct distinction. You know, you know, the thing of it like this, when Jesus stands before crowds of simple men, women, children, and he calls them to believe in him, to follow him, to take up their cross, to love him, to obey him, all, all of these various ways in which we've, we've read from the scripture that he puts the call to them, you never hear Jesus stop and say, but of course you're saved by faith alone. I don't want you to become confused. 
you, the, the moment you believe in me, you're saved. All the rest of this has to do with discipleship, which would be like a second level. But your, your salvation is by faith alone. You never hear Jesus do that. He doesn't do that. And so I was never satisfied with this understanding of things, uh, trying to make this clear distinction, doing the, the dissection of the frog, if you will. I couldn't believe that simple Christians would be responsible to draw such fine distinctions in order to understand how someone gets to heaven. And so this was all a conundrum for me as a Reformed believer and continued to be one for some time. Now I'm, now I'm going to move forward with my story, but if you have something you want to interject, do it now. The only thing I want to add is that, is that uh, I never even encountered Reformed thinking on these questions until I was probably in college. But I remember the first time I encountered it and hearing it, you know, sort of broken down in all the ways that you, you, you talked about, like, so I live in a, uh, I live in a particular County in a particular part of the East coast that has lots of rules, uh, you know, and when you think about various things that you have to do, you can say, well, I am certified, but I'm not registered. Okay. So you gotta be certified and then you're registered, but you're certified and registered, but you're not notarized. So like you got to be certified and registered and then notarized in order to be, you know, approved. Like when I was, when I heard reformed theology for the first time, I, I was like, this sounds like the DMV or something, man. Like it sounds, <laughs> it just sounded like a, like all these levels of like, you've got to go to the secret back room of the courthouse and go through like f- 15 levels of paperwork. So I, I, again, um, just from my own particular tradition, you know, hearing this you know, broken down the way that, that Reformed theology breaks it down. It was just, a, it was a very strange thing for me to think about, uh, given my Wesleyan heritage. Yeah, and I and I would 100% resonate with that. And actually, something that Marcus points out in the in the book, you know, what must I do to be saved? This, this is something that I would say, uh, can your, <laughs> you, the way that you described how you understood theology shows up at the altar call, um, and, and, and so what, what we would do, especially when I was, le- you know, doing altar calls and I'd say, come forward and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And we'd pray the prayer. And then if someone did it, we'd say, now look right here at me. Now, if you prayed that prayer, you can be assured that if you died today, you'll go to heaven. So, you know, Marcus talks about giving that with the one hand. On, on Sunday at the altar call. Now, Monday, <laughs> church is over, altar call's over, I'm living my life. So what I gave you at the altar call with one hand, now I'm going to take away with the other because you're not acting much like a Christian on Monday morning. Um, either you can be assured of your salvation or you can't, but I'm not acting like a Christian. So in one of these systems, that just means you weren't really saved in the first place. Well, then what, what did my, what was my pastor doing telling me to look right here? If you prayed that prayer, you're really saved. And it's so confusing. And that's why I think, you know, back to your point, Ken, an intuitive reading of the gospel, of the gospels, the words of Jesus in the New Testament, wants to see all of these things being together, doesn't want to deconstruct and dislocate them from each other. So I'm, I'm just, thrilled that we're going to, you know, we're going to walk through this together. Can I just say one thing on top of that? Um, What's what's wild, Ken, is that the Reformed tradition is the one that really doubles down on the idea that any human being can just pick up the Bible and it would be clear to them, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like there's this, you know, any, 
anybody could just pick it up and just realize what it means. And yet that's the, the worldview that ends up deconstructing and legalizing and like putting it all in some sort of courtroom language that becomes like very complicated for a layperson to understand. Yeah. Well, well, I, I must say that it's Protestantism in general that, that takes the position that the Bible is clear enough for anyone to read it and come to it an understanding, not just reformed, but I just want to make that mm -hmm. clarification. So someone mm -hmm. listening won't um, come mm -hmm. down with a, a load of bricks. Okay. Let me, let me move forward <laughs> with the story though. Okay. Cause I'm telling a story here. This is on the journey uh, with Matt and Ken and Kenny. Ultimately for me, you guys, it was becoming Catholic that allowed me to read the new Testament and, and, and to hear it. You know, to take an intuitive, open reading of what it's saying um, without having to perform all these mental gymnastics. Faith, that's for justification. I'm made right in the, in the sight of God. I'm saved. All the rest of these calls of Jesus, those fall under sanctification. But then again, if I'm truly justified by faith, then I will do those. But, I, but I'm, you know, the back and forth, the gymnastics, okay? It was becoming Catholic that really cleaned that up for me and allowed me to read the Gospels and, and just hear it and, and to understand that, um, and to understand that what Jesus is saying in many different ways amounts to one thing, okay? But there was something else that happened to me way back when I was in seminary that actually opened me and began to help me understand how all the calls of Jesus stated in all these various ways are really a single call. And I want to go into that for a few minutes here. It's when I was first exposed to something that the very brilliant 17th century Catholic philosopher and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, wrote in his amazing book titled The Ponces, or The Thoughts. Okay, Here's the passage that struck me. It maybe one of the most important passages I've ever read from Catholic in in a Catholic, from a Catholic writer. I'll just read the passage and then comment on it a bit. Here's what Pascal says: All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. And at this point, he gives an illustration. He says the motivation for some going to war and the motivation for others not going to war, it's all the same thing, okay? This is the motive, that is happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. And yet, after such a great number of years, no one without faith in God has reached the point to which all continually look. No one can find what, what they're looking for. All complain, princes and subjects, noblemen and commoners, old and young, strong and weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick, of all countries, all times, all ages, and all conditions. A trial so long, so continuous, and so uniform should certainly convince us of our inability to reach the good by our own efforts. But example teaches us little. What is it then that this desire for happiness and this inability that is to find it, what is it that this desire proclaims to us, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remains to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking in things absent what he does not find and things present, the things that he has. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss within us can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object that is to say, 
by God himself. Okay, as strange as some of this sounded to me, it doesn't sound strange anymore, but when I first read it, I mean, for, for instance, even the man who hangs himself is seeking happiness. I think that I could see, you guys, almost immediately that this was true, that Pascal was right. I could look back over my own life and I could see that all I had ever really done was seek happiness in everything I'd ever done. I mean, I remember when I was about 10 years old, climbing up into this huge tree in my backyard, I had a copy of a little book that was the, the, uh, the autobiography, the, yeah, the autobiography, I believe, of Wild Bill Hickok. And I remember laying up in that tree and reading this book and feeling, seriously, feeling as though I was going to die with longing, deep desire and longing to be a cowboy, <laughs> to be, to be <laughs> like him, to, to, to live the life that he had lived. And I just thought, you know, my life in my backyard, the dirt, dirty backyard, this lousy tree <laughs> laying up here in the branch, you know, my life is nothing like this. I want to be a cowboy. And then I think forward when the Beatles came out on the Ed Sullivan show and I just devoted my entire life to becoming a Beatle. And that went on for many, many years, playing the guitar, singing in bands and all. And then, Kenny, I, I know I mentioned this to you the other day and you laughed your head off. When I was 21 years old, I moved up to Lake Tahoe to become a professional card counter, a professional gambler. And my, my, my desire was to live a third of the year in Tahoe, a third of the year in Las Vegas, and a third of the year in Monte Carlo, um, counting cards and making millions and millions of dollars. You know, but I could tell a story that basically unfolds every single day of my life, and I realized Pascal was right. All I'd ever been doing my entire life is described in this passage. I was always seeking happiness. I was always trying to find it in some created thing, some aspect of this world. I was never able to find it entirely. And I always knew, I think, at some level that the abyss within, you know, the abyss within me could not be filled by something from the created order. It, it, it would only be filled by something beyond this world, something mm -hmm. transcendent. And I want to throw it to you guys. Please tell me that you relate mm -hmm. to what I'm talking about here and I'm not out here on a branch by myself. Yeah. Any, anybody? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's right, Ken. I think we all can relate to that. And it's because of what Pascal does there. He... I would say he does philosophy with a, a very biblically uh, rooted sort of Genesis 1 through 3 um, anchor in which we learn that our vocation as human beings is to be in the image of God in the world and to live in this perfect um, communion with God. And that because, you know, as the catechism says so beautifully and simply, that we participated in this original sin, which is wanting to be myself by myself without God, because we're all participants and caught up in that, that, that echo, what can, what, what should we call it? A latent human memory that all of us are born with that goes back to this original calling that says there's a certain way I'm supposed to live in the world. And if I live in the world that way, it's going to feel right. But since we're not connected to it, then we go out trying to find it in all the wrong things. And uh, it's such a good starting place for this this hunger that we have to, quote, be something. And yes, the Bible yes. does have, obviously, an answer for it. But how about you, Matt? <clears throat> well, I, I, I can just echo that entirely. Um, but the thing is, is that the whole world knows that something's broken and 
I mean, who is the, I wish I could remember the theologian who says that like original sin is like the one empirically provable doctrine <laughs> yeah. uh, in all of Christianity. <laughs> like it's the one thing that is so was, utterly self-evident. I think it was Chesterton that said that, but. I, I mean, yeah. when in doubt, attribute yeah. to Chesterton. It might not have been him. I have no idea who it was. But like, I think we all know that something's broken. And everybody, everybody knows this. Advertisers know this, right? Um, and so their way to try and resolve this in us, this this hunger, this latent hunger, this desire, this, well, what, you know, Pascal's talking about this infinite abyss within us that can only be filled by something infinite. We get all these finite things thrown at us, right? Um you're in the wrong car, you're in the wrong house, you're in the wrong job, you're in the wrong clothes, you might even be in the wrong body, right? Like you just, mm-hmm. you're in the wrong everything. So why don't I help you with that by directing you to this aisle where we have these <laughs> items, <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of how the yeah. world is, is, is sort of set up, um, is to try and like ease those pains with something from the consumerist advertising media yeah. saturation world and before i get any more punk rock than that i'll just sort of leave it off yeah okay so how in the world though okay it, it sounds like we've gone it sounds like we started by talking about the call of jesus and now it sounds like we're talking about a totally different subject so how did this passage from pascal how did it help me to understand how the call of the gospel although described in all these various ways really amounts essentially to one call okay how did it do it Here's how I want to explain, and this was this may come off abstract and strange, but it, this is profoundly important in my life. Here's how: as I thought about what Pascal is saying in this passage, Matt and Ken, it struck me. Every one of us is seeking happiness all the time, and we're always trusting in something. We're always trusting in something or someone to bring us this happiness that we seek. In other words. We're always living by faith. Okay, this is the thing that hit me. We're always living by faith. We're seeking happiness, and we're always trusting in something to bring us that happiness. And and here's the final link to that. It turns out that whatever we trust for our future happiness, this is what we quite naturally follow and obey and love and serve and confess before men. Okay? Okay. This is how it works. For instance, if my faith for future happiness is in money, as it was when I went up to Tahoe to, to learn how to become, you know, the, uh, what was that movie? The Rain Man, you know, learn how to count the cards and make it happen. Okay. If my faith for future happiness is in money and the things that money can buy me, I will very naturally follow money. I will very naturally love money. I will serve money, not in the sense that money needs anything, but in the sense that I'll do everything I can to position myself in such a way as to benefit from money. I will obey money. I'll do what it needs. I will confess money. I'll tell all of you, you know, you've got to get the Wall Street Journal. You've got to get Barron's. You've got to like start looking at the stock charts and whatnot. All of this stuff will follow quite naturally. And it is natural. After all, what did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And the same applies if my faith is in, uh, you know, my faith for future happiness is in me becoming a big shot or is some person, you know, um, whatever it happens to be, we're naturally going to follow and love and serve this person. And because of that, all at once, you guys, what I realized was that the essence of the gospel, well, it became clear to me in a new way. 
Here's something from Soren Kierkegaard. He once said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Well, here's the one thing that the gospel is calling for, even though it's described in so many different ways. It's calling for you and I to turn, there's your repentance, turn from whatever it is that we have been trusting to bring us the happiness that we never stop searching for and put our trust in Christ and therefore follow him, look to him, love him, obey him, serve him. You know, it, it, I'll stop there if, if you want to comment on that. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It really yes, does. It does. And so this is, so there, I don't want to go too far down these roads, but um, there are different head games depending on what kind of theological tradition you come from. Um, in the Wesleyan Arminian head game, it is, did I sin just now? Uh, did that cut me off from God forever? Like, did that thought technically count as a temptation or a sin? Uh, you know, did I will that or did I succumb to something that was an external force? And then you're like constantly like, you know, trying to like put yourself in this framework of like, you know, how that all works. And in Calvinism, it's like, am I elect or am I not elect, right? And the endless head game that goes on with that. In some senses, the Catholic system is so much more simple. Get baptized, go to confession, receive the Eucharist. It's fairly simple because those essentially wrap up every single thing that you just said, right? <laughs> you know I mean, it, there are other things you can do, but Catholicism from the outside perspective seems like this super complex, you know, sets of gears and, and all that. But really all it is is like a really simplified and streamlined version of exactly what you just said. I mean, we're going to get into this over coming weeks, but it's like a simplified, streamlined version of, of exactly that. Kenny, anything? I, I think I'm going to hold for now, okay. uh, Ken. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hold back. The, keep, keep some dry powder on hand, <laughs> hold, hold as they back. say. That's hold right. Back. Okay. But okay. Yeah. But let me pull this all together because what I'm saying here is this. After Pascal, after working through, after thinking about the gospel call in all of its varied ways of being stated, and then what Pascal says here, I, I now see the call of the gospel as summed up in one essential thing, and that is using the words that St. Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where he describes the conversion of the Thessalonians by saying that they turned from idols to serve the living God. That's it. I mean, in a word, you know, purity of heart is to will one thing. In a word, that is what sums up the gospel. That is what we're called to. Again, I'll state it. It's to turn from whatever it is we've been trusting, and we continue to struggle all the time throughout our lives to trust various things to bring us this happiness that we're always searching for, as Pascal said, turn from whatever it is we're trusting and keep turning to Christ. Turn to Christ. Follow him. Now, as soon as I saw this, as soon as it came together for me, I began to see this confirmed throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, the lives of the saints, and the catechism. And so here's another one of those times where I'm going to run through a few passages of Scripture because suddenly I could see so many passages from the Old Testament that began to leap off the page to me now, and I began to notice how often we find God calling his people to turn from idols or to turn from their strange gods, um, to put their trust in him, to love him, to cling to him, to obey him. This language of idolatry, you know, was, was constant, I could see now throughout the Old Testament. In fact, God pleads with his people to do this numerous times. 
And not only because it would be blasphemy for them to worship idols, but because God knows that they will never find the happiness that they seek in these strange gods. And so listen to this now in a few passages. Here's Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. Here's the heart of God. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Sounds just like Pat Pascal, you know? Why are you looking for happiness in all of these created things when the infinite abyss can only be filled by God? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in fatness, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Here's another one from Jeremiah that has become one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, where God virtually begs his people to seek their happiness in him and to stop seeking it in other things. Here's what God says through, through Jeremiah. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, water pots, water jugs for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Makes you think immediately of all the broken cisterns that you've been hewing out for yourself your entire life, you know? If I only could get this, I'll be happy. Oh, if I can get that, I'll be happy. Oh, this will satisfy me. You know, like you said, Matt, all the commercials on TV. When I watch television now, it, it, it just strikes me. All they're doing is telling me, get happy this way, get happy that way, get happy this other way. God says here that God describes the sin of his people Israel as, as in the fact that they have forsaken him, even though he's the spring of living water. It's as though God's saying, I am the source of everything you really want and have ever wanted. And your sin is that you have turned from me to hew out these cisterns, these lousy little pots that are all cracked on the bottom and cannot even hold water. And, and one of the things, Ken, if I can jump here in here sure. that we'll see not only in these texts, but I'm sure as we look forward into the New Testament is once again, this Edenic voice, this Genesis 1 through 3 voice about the linkage between spiritual death and hungering for things that aren't the right things. And this is exactly what happens to our first parents when they hunger for something that God forbids and go after it as though it's going to uh, fulfill all their hopes and dreams. And so the prophets in that sense joined their voice uh, in calling Israel back to her vocation to be the the people of God in the world, they sound a lot like God, you know, in the garden saying, don't, <laughs> why are you eating that? Don't eat that. And, 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 and ascribing to that, the connection to idolatry and that hunger and that thirst really goes down into what you said about this human longing. That's really the metaphor that you need to talk about, like, why am I not holy? You know, just to get right into it, because 
I'm hungering and thirsting and trying to satiate that hunger and thirst with the wrong things. In that sense, I'm participating in the original sin. And I'll always hear, therefore, the prophet's voice, God's voice, you know, through the lips of a person or his word or whoever it is, calling me back to that original vocation. People think about Ken Hensley as a Catholic apologist and Kenny Burchard as a Catholic apologist, but uh, hearing you all talk, this must have been what it must have sounded like to hear you all preach sermons. Like, <laughs> this is essentially, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it seems, it seems to me like a great deal of what you're saying, of course, Ken, you know, you, we're going to bring in the reformed perspective and, and, and talk about like where the flaws are in that. Um, but it seems to me like most of what is being said in this episode is stuff that you would have probably affirmed from the pulpit, both of you. Right. I mean, yeah. this is, this is, this is basic boilerplate Christianity. And I think that some people who like think of Catholicism and think about like what the Catholic church demands of us and what it, you know, wants us to do and, and what it calls us toward. It's like some kind of a, well, you'll even see it in some of the comments, right? Um, where people yeah, are like right. Catholicism preaches a different gospel. I don't know, man. It sounds like the same gospel I grew let up me, with so yeah, far. Let me, uh, yes, it's true that I preach this a lot. And it's because I have to preach it to myself like every day. So it was on my mind. All right. So it's, it was just a natural o o overflow. But here's the thing that, that I want our viewers and our, our hearers to, to hear is that it's easy for us to think of the gospel as I'm going to tell you this story about Jesus. And if you believe it, you're a Christian, you know, or if you accept right. it, you're a Christian. And, and, and what I want to say is no, no, no. If you listen to the heart of God all the way through scripture, he is saying, he is saying, come to me, <laughs> you know, these things, yes. you know, I am the spring of living water. I am what you really want and what you need. Quit with the false gods and the strange gods and falling down to idols. Quit, put them away, throw them away and come to me. Okay. We find this language throughout the old Testament, but lo and behold, we find this language throughout the new Testament as well. Think about Jesus's conversation with the Samaritan woman, gentlemen, at the well in John chapter four. Notice how Jesus appeals to her deepest desire for happiness and wholeness when he says to this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, you, you would be asking me and I would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks the water, this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. And the verse, there, there's so many like this, you know, I, I have to just pick and choose a few, uh, but I can't stand to not include some because they're so powerful. Now, here's one from John 7 that I, that I find extremely powerful. This is what it says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this is the thing that strikes me about this passage. Jesus has come to Jerusalem in John chapter 7 to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. As you know, this is one of the three great feasts of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So, Get the image in your mind. The city of Jerusalem is crowded with many, with, with millions of millions of Jewish pilgrims that have come throughout the Roman Empire. 
they've been eating, they've been drinking, they've been celebrating for seven days. And then notice these words in the text on the last day of the feast, on the great day. Why does John include that? Here's why. Just when you would expect that everyone that is there would be totally satiated. They have been drinking, they've been eating, they've been partying and celebrating for seven straight days. It's on the last day, the great day of the feast, that Jesus stands up and he proclaims, if anyone thirst, let him come to me. That mm. blows me away because it's as though, it's not as though, Jesus knows that all the partying, all the drinking, all the celebrating still has not answered the, the deep desire of their hearts that all men seek happiness, even those who hang themselves are seeking happiness. Jesus is speaking here just like Isaiah. He's speaking like Jeremiah. He's speaking like Pascal. He's saying the infinite abyss within can only be filled by an infinite object. That is to say, by God himself. He's preaching the gospel. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yes, Kenny, yeah, and I, I don't want to. I, no, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like a broken record, even though Matt is the guy with all the records. Well, even though I shelf, sound like but, one, it's fine. I sound like no. a broken record. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but again, again, here we have this. You know, this um, coherence to the biblical story. This very Edenic garden, full, uh, f- full of the wrong things, kind of language that you're. Uh, and filled with either the right things or the wrong things. But even more than that, what the Bible's giving us, Ken, and what you're showing us is that the Bible is giving us essentially two ways to be human. (laughs) Um, And one leads to death. And in that, we have this uh, father, Adam, who is going to show us how to be separate from God forever, which is to, to die in sin, choosing our own will above the will of God with whatever it is we, we decide to do. Um, or this version of humanity, this new humanity, Jesus, who says, come to me. Uh, compared to what? Or in contrast to what? This other version of humanity of which there are 50 million different, billion different iterations, all of them going back to one guy or one, you know, one first uh, couple, Adam and Eve. And he's saying, you're going to find who you are supposed to be only in the version of humanity standing in front of me. Oh, you know, oh, everyone that thirsts, drink the right stuff, eat the right stuff. And then Jesus saying, if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, um, not, you know, believe these four facts and you'll go to heaven forever, but no, come to me. I am the version of humanity that when you die, you will go into a grave, but you'll you will rise with me and you'll be with God forever. So it's very, very rooted, you know, the, the call of the gospel is rooted in which version of humanity we we ultimately choose to associate ourselves to and align ourselves with. It's powerful stuff. Now I um I know I'm beating this thing into the ground, okay? I'm whipping it I'm like a horse and I'm beating it into the ground, but I want to do it a little bit more because I want you to see that as those listening, those watching, we see this message in Pascal. Mm-hmm. We see this message throughout the Old Testament. We see it throughout the New Testament. We also find this same message in the writings of all the great saints of history. What did Augustine famously say? Everyone knows it. 
Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. St. Philip Neri was known for his happiness. You know, he's like the happy saint. He's known for this. Listen to how he put it. The essential thing to do is to give oneself totally to God. He who wants something other than Christ does not know what he wants. He who seeks something other than Christ does not know what he wishes. Same message. And then we find the same message finally, just one more whipping of the horse, beating it into the ground. We find the same message in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In fact, this is something that makes me really happy and excites me. Having chewed on these ideas for many years and having preached on these ideas many, many, many times, I can't tell you what it meant for me, what a confirmation it was of this message that I'm talking about here. When I first read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I found, I discovered that it not only teaches this same truth, it actually begins with it, okay? That, that, that's important. And I'm serious about that. Don't do it right now, but if you open your catechism to part one, section one, chapter one, and you look at the first heading, which is the desire for God, this is what you will read. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and the happiness he never stops searching for. Now, mm. let me conclude by saying something, and then you gentlemen can throw in a final word. Again, this may seem to some like abstract theology, theologizing that's going today, but I want to insist that this is a supremely practical message. So practical, it's unbelievably practical, because it leads us to understand that in the process of sanctification, our growing in Christ, our growing closer to him, being conformed to his image, the pursuit of holiness, all that, it, it, it leads us to understand that the fight that we fight every single day, and I don't know about you guys, but basically almost every hour, except maybe when I'm actually like recording a show, <laughs> maybe, maybe we should record shows 24 hours a day, but okay, the fight that we fight is a fight to believe that what the catechism says here is true that only in God will we find the truth and happiness we never stop searching for. This is practical because what it shows me is that the struggle that the struggle that I'm in, the fight that I fight, is a fight of faith. It's a fight to keep seeking, to keep fixing my, um, my eyes on, on the Lord and seeking my happiness in Him and in becoming the person that He created me to be and wants me to be and to not be seeking my happiness in something else or becoming the other kind of humanity you're talking about. In other words, it's so practical because it shows me that it, at every moment of my life, the struggle that I'm in is a, it truly is a struggle of faith. Do I trust that Christ is the answer? Do I trust that God is the spring of living water? Or am I going to go about making another, hewing another, you know, water pot, you know, made out of lousy clay that has a crack in the bottom and the water will run out? And I've done it a million times and I already know the water is going to run out, but here I am doing it again. The struggle we're in is a struggle of faith and it, and it allows you to, it allows me to understand moment by moment what is going on inside of me. So, so it's not just like, again, uh, 
take these four points in the gospel and believe them. Now you're a Christian. And now try to be a good person or something like that. It, it, this tells me what's going on. The struggle that's going on. Matt, Kenny, I know you understand this. This is what's going on. Okay. And so one more thing for me really quickly. People will often ask, how does a Catholic preach the gospel? And again, it's easy to think that the gospel is the recitation of certain facts. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again from the dead. Believe this. And you're, you're a Christian. Accept these things as true. Maybe get baptized, join the church. And what I want to say is, no. The gospel is just this. The gospel is, you guys, we're all seeking happiness. This is without exception. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Our problem is we keep trusting in the wrong things, things that lead us away from God and that will lead us to ultimately to judgment. We need to turn from these idols, these strange gods. We need to throw them away. We need to turn to Christ and we need to put our hope in him, take up our cross, follow him, love him, obey him, trust him. And I'll just stop because I'm going to keep on talking. Any final words, Matt? In a sense, what you're saying is that, well, not to keep on throwing this book up on the screen, but it starts with the question, <laughs> what must I do to be saved? But asking that question as your starting point is one thing. Asking it as your end point is another thing. Like, what if I started off by saying, what must I do to find a wife? <laughs> right? Like, um, that's one way to kind of start a conversation but I've been married for closing in on two decades. I'm not asking that question the same way now. I'm asking, like, how do I grow greater in relationship with the woman to whom I've committed myself for, you know, this entire lifetime that I'm going to spend on this earth, right? Um, in some ways, like, we were married once we said the I do's, but it didn't, it was not just like a statement of faith that carried us through to the present moment, right? It's not merely what must I do to find a wife, right? And there's, there's, there's layers and layers to this, but all I can say is I'm excited to see where the series goes because you've opened yeah. some, you've opened some really good, Me good too. boxes here. Cool. Cool. Good. To really connect to what Matt was just saying, Ken, you know, this question you did the work for us at the beginning of this episode. What must I do to be saved from a Catholic Christian biblical perspective is not a question that we ask in a dislocated way, a disjunctured way, whatever you want to say it, from the question of what must I do to become a holy person? It's the same thing. This is, this is one thing, and I think this is where you're headed with this, this, is what I hear you saying. The what must I do to be saved, the gospel question. The answer to that is the same as, what must I do to be a holy person, the version of humanity that God originally intended for me to be, as seen in his original created tent, intent with the first humans? And that is this, that I, the answer to that is, I must follow Jesus. I must follow Jesus. And it's exactly, you read the text early in the episode, Ken, uh, the people in Acts ask, what must we do? Men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter said, repent every one of you from your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus, uh, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and turn from this wicked and 
perverse generation. That's, as Catholics, that's how we preach the gospel. And there are gospel implications down inside of all of that that I'm really looking forward to uh, unpacking with you guys, you know, in the weeks well, to come. This is why I, I've titled the series, uh, using the words of St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1, nine, turning from idols to serve the living God. And yeah, we're going to get into all the things that you're hinting at. So that's it. It's funny. Um, I mentioned jokingly that we didn't really sing Blessed Assurance in my <laughs> congregation, uh, any of my congregations growing up. But we did sing a song um, all the time in vacation Bible school and Sunday services called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, right? <laughs> like that it does somehow reside in the will, right? The church um, wants us to accept grace, but it also wants us to participate in the process, right? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. No, Though none go with me, still I will follow, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot. There's a lot in this. So, um, just want to encourage people, throw the links out before we wrap it all up here. Um, first of all, you can go to chnetwork.org, find uh, all the previous episodes of On the Journey, uh, find the future episodes of this series uh, at chnetwork.org. Um, lots of great stuff there. Uh, over a thousand stories of people who become Catholic from every background you can possibly imagine. We have an online community as well, and uh, you can plug into that. Uh, Ken and Kenny and I um, hang out in there and answer questions and hang out. We have a Friday fellowship too that you can be a part of as well. Again, that's community.chnetwork.org. And we mentioned this at the top of the show, and I've shown this book like 20 times because it just, I mean, this is the topic, right? Um, sanctification. What does it mean? What is the gospel? Uh, if you want to be a supporter of On the Journey and our work, uh, please consider joining our Compass program, really any level. Uh, it just means that you're a monthly donor to make this uh, and other programs and other services that we do available to as many people as possible. Go to chnetwork.org slash donate. Um, if you enter the code OTJ3141, um, we'll get you a copy of this book by Marcus, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Uh, and we'll get Marcus to sign it. Um, I gotta find him. He'll be in his overalls in a pasture with cattle, but I will flag him down and get him to write in the book um, his own name, his, uh, his John Hancock there, his Marcus Grodi. In the meantime, Again, uh, chnetwork.org slash donate, um, the Compass program, join at any level. In the meantime, gentlemen, Good to be with you. I'm excited Good for to be this with new you. series. Yeah. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. And Good thanks deal. for joining us thanks, for this guys. episode of On the Journey. We'll talk to you again next time around. Okay. Okay.